Let's pray together. Lord, the last uh, verse of this psalm, uh, we pray together. Um, I pray for myself that, that the words of my mouth and that together the meditations of our hearts as we sit here this morning and think on your word, that, that they would be pleasing to you, that you would lead us once again to know with greater clarity what your word says, that we might see you with greater clarity, that we might see your grace and your mercy, mercy, your goodness, your faithfulness, your justice, your holiness, all that you are, that we would see it and that you would conform us more to the image of Christ Christ and draw us to him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Context is king. Uh, I'm assuming you've heard that before. The first time that I think I heard that phrase, uh, I was in a literature class, probably in middle school or high school, and I don't remember what book we were discussing, but we were discussing something that a character said, and of course we were asking questions like, well, what did it mean? What did it mean when that character said that? Um, Why did they say that? What does that have to do with the bigger story that the author is trying to tell? Context is king. It's true in relationships. I'm assuming if you're here this morning and you're a living, breathing, human being that sucks air and, you know, spits it out, that you've had an argument before. Uh, And if your arguments ever go like mine, it's something where whoever I'm in an argument with, I'm saying something like, no, that's not what I said. I didn't say that. You have to understand what I said in the context. Because you said all these things. Maybe that's, no, anyone? Okay. Um, Just me. Um, Some of you, like me, at some point in your life have gone to see a counselor because you've become stuck in some aspect of your life. You've you've gotten stuck in patterns of living or thinking or relating to others, and you needed someone who can see the bigger context and can see what's going on to help you see a different way of thinking, of relating, of living. Context. If a word is only intelligible in a sentence and in a paragraph, if our relationships and our struggles only make sense when we see them in the bigger picture and the bigger story that's going on, what about the meaning of our lives? What is the meaning of our lives and how do we even go about understanding that and trying to live life well in this world? At least in my life, if there was ever a time that we needed such greater wisdom than any of us have in and of ourselves, I would say it's a time like right now. The mass of sorrow and pain, of fear and anger, of confusion and frustration that has happened in 2020 I mean, this week, I I hit a point, I don't know if you've hit this point, if you've hit it previously, but this week when all the stuff started coming out about Kenosha, it was like I'd been carrying, I don't know, hundreds of pounds of weight from just all that's been going on and just has not really resolved and settled. And then another like 40 pound plate was put on it and it just felt overwhelming. We need wisdom. Wherever you are this morning, wherever you're coming from, if you're someone who is a believer professing faith in Christ, if you're someone who is asking questions, if, if you're someone who, is, who doesn't believe but you're here, we need wisdom. And this psalm, Psalm 19, is a wisdom psalm. It's a psalm that helps place our lives in the bigger context, the bigger story of the revealed God. The God who is revealed in creation, 
the God who is revealed in the scriptures, and the God who is revealed as the Redeemer. So I want us to think about each of these as we look at our text this morning. Uh, if, you, if you have a copy of the scriptures or on your phone or something, I'd encourage you to have it out as we, as we unpack this. But first, let's think about the God that is revealed in creation. If we're going to live well, if we're going to do life well in this world, we have to know our environment, the context in which we live our lives. And in these first opening six verses, David draws our imaginations to see and hear the voice of creation ever testifying all around us and, con- and continuously proclaiming the glory of God. Look at verse 1 with me. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now David is just, he's pinpointing one aspect of creation, the heavens, the sky, as an example of the whole of creation that is declaring the glory of God, that it is showing God's, his craftsmanship, his handiwork, it's revealing the one who made it. And this is continuous and ongoing. If you look at verse 2, he says, day to day, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This revelation that God has made, it's it's like a beautiful piece of art that is continually testifying to the glory of the one who made it. Uh, At the Art Institute in Chicago, there's a very famous pointillism piece um, called uh, Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. If you're not familiar with it immediately, if you've ever seen the movie Ferris Bueller, it is in Ferris Bueller when they go to the art museum. And if you're familiar with the scene, this is where Cameron just like stands and stares at this painting, which seems like must go on for like, I don't know, maybe like hours. Like he's just staring at it. And you can obviously, you can stand back and you can take in the whole of this thing, which is just so beautiful. Or you can zero in and you can get closer and closer, which is what the camera does in that movie. And you see the colors of these dots of this pointillism piece as you get closer and closer and how they're all blended together and how together they make this beautiful portrait. And of course, it reveals something of the glory of the artist who could do such a thing. It's really fitting that we're outside today. I'm glad that we weren't rained out. I mean, look at the sky. I'm particularly looking at some clouds over here and the brush strokes that those clouds seem to represent. I mean, some of you, I know, have gone uh, out away from the light pollution of the suburbs and the city to various places on clear nights where you have seen the sky lit up in beauty with stars. It's revealing the glory of the one who created it. We are surrounded by the beauty of creation. We, we can't help but be confronted with the glory of God. And it, really, I mean, we could take the most powerful microscope and we could look at intricacies of things that I don't even understand, but some of you probably do, of cells and of animal life and plant life. We can look at the intricacies of the human body and we're confronted with it. You can take the, the most powerful telescope and, and you can look at things that we can't see with the visible eye and see the glories of the universe. Verses three and four of our text tell us, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's a glory that surrounds us. 
And in the last two verses of this section, in verses 5 and 6, David concludes this picture with the rising and the setting of the sun. And the point is this last uh, phrase of verse 6, if you look at it, where he writes, There is nothing hidden from its heat. Which is, in a sense, to say that if you've been hit by the sun's rays, if you feel the warmth of the sun's rays, you are hit by God's revelation. And this revelation is clear. It's probably Psalm 19 that Paul is thinking of when he writes in Romans 1 these words, when he says, what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it. For God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. This revelation surrounds us like water to a fish. It's, it's the most basic aspect to the world that we live in. In, in 2005, David Foster Wallace uh, gave a very famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. And in the beginning of the speech, he starts with this story where he says, there's two fish, and these two fish are swimming around, and then there's an older fish that comes up and, and swims next to them and says, how's the water, boys? And then swims off. And then one of the fishies looks at the other and says, what's water? And he goes on to say in that speech, the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious and important realities are the ones that are often hardest to see and talk about. In a sense, do you realize that you live in water like a fish? That the most basic aspect of the environment in which you live, breathe, and move is God and the presence of God. The air that you breathe, the ground that you are currently sitting on, the legs that will bear you up when you leave this place, the minds that are interpreting and understanding the words that I'm saying right now reveal and testify to you of God. There are many reasons why this matters, but one... um, It means that our experience of the world as an incredibly beautiful place, an incredibly broken place, makes a lot of sense. If you know what I'm talking about, right? If all of this is just an accident, think about that. If all of this is just an accident, if you are just an accident of chaotic forces in the universe, then there is no such thing as evil. Really, there is no such thing as injustice, at least injustice from a cosmic perspective. There might be something that a group of people don't like, but there's no such thing as injustice because how would you even define justice? There's really no such thing as brokenness, and all of the suffering is just natural. It's just what is. But what the Bible says about creation, it means that the concerns that we have about the broken world and our lives and the concerns that we have about justice and the longings that we have and the longings that people all over the world have, longing for what the Bible calls shalom, peace, which is not just the absence of conflict, but it is the presence of wholeness and fullness and life as it was meant to be, that that's not actually crazy. That it's exactly right that you would want that. And what the Bible says about creation also means that though according to our timetable and sometimes what we wish we would see happen, it doesn't seem like God is doing things, but God is actually very, very much 
longing for the things that we long to see and committed to the things that we wish would happen, the kind of peace and wholeness that we long for, and he's committed to it far more than we are. It means at baseline that our stories, the context of our stories can be ones of hope, which one is a great comfort to us. If you live and move through this world in the context of realizing this is my father's world, let me never forget that though the wrong is off so strong, God is the ruler yet. It also means that this hope is meant to shape the way that we live into this world. In that same hymn, there's another line that says, This is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied when earth and heaven are one. Earlier this summer, I think it was in the Psalms, it might have been in Isaiah, this notion that to be a Christian is to have, an, is to have a holy unsatisfaction with the way that things are. And a hope that leads us into the world, even in the midst of what seems like complete darkness and like maybe nothing will ever change or complete hopelessness, that we actually go into it with hope because we know that the God who is present, who created the world, who is bringing the world in history to its climax in and through Jesus, is at work and is faithful. This is the context of our lives, to live in the presence of the God who is revealed in creation. But it actually gets better. Because in verse 7, David talks about the revelation of the one true God in his word. The God who is revealed in scripture, verses 7 through 11. And while the true God is revealed in creation, it is only through scripture that we come to know the God of the covenant. The God of redemption. So in verse 1, the word for God is this word in Hebrew, El, which is one of the common words for God. But in verses 7 through 14, seven times you can see the word LORD all in capital letters. And this is the divine name, the special covenant name of God, Yahweh, the name given to Moses and the people of Israel. In a sense, it, it's, it's, a, it's a God who we have seen act in history. We have seen his resume. We've seen what he does in our world. And I want you to jump to verse 10 because this is what David says about this revelation. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. Like, think about what he's saying. David is saying that to know God's life-giving word is better than having $10 million in your bank account. And to, if you could imagine taking scripture and like eating it, and ingesting it and bringing it into your life and tasting it and savoring in it, that it is sweeter than the freshest honey from the honeycomb, straight from the source. And here's why it's so valuable. Let, let's, let's look more at what David says about Scripture. Verse 7 introduces us to this middle section, which is all about the law of the Lord. And if you were with us last week, uh, when we looked at Psalm 1, this is that same word that is in Psalm 1, uh, where Psalm 1 says, uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he shall meditate day and night. And both here in, in Psalm 19 and in Psalm 1, the word is Torah. And I think a better translation, and Jeff said this last week as well, it's always good to agree with the senior pastor, the better translation is instruction. Because I think sometimes when we think about law, we, we only think about a very narrow set of things, like maybe the Ten Commandments. And certainly that would be included in this, but we're talking about basically Scripture, God's instruction. 
And the rest of this section, from verses 7 through verse 9, David describes the Torah and the instruction of the Lord, and he does it by this pattern where you can see it's Torah or a Torah synonym, and then plus a characteristic, plus what it is or what it does. And what he's doing here is he's trying to help us to appreciate the richness of what we have in God's word. And he's kind of like a fancy waiter at a restaurant. If you've ever been to you know, a fancy restaurant and you're looking at the menu and you're not really sure what to order and you're going through thinking about the different things that you could order and then the waiter comes around and he tells you about the special. That's like the thing you really, really want to order. David knows that there are lots of things that all of us sitting here today think are more valuable and sweeter than God's word. And whatever that is for you, whatever you are drawn to, to say in a sense like with your heart, maybe not with your mind, but with your heart, what you're drawn to, you say, this thing is better than gold if I could have it. And this thing is sweeter than honey if I could have it. David is trying to convince us and get our mouths watering to actually see that what we really long for and need are the very words and instruction of God. David wants us to see that God's word is, is the bacon-wrapped filet mignon with the garlic potatoes and, you know, the, the, the grilled asparagus and the wine that is perfectly placed with it. Look at what he says about God's word. The instruction of the Lord, verse 7, is perfect. It's not lacking. If you have the instruction of the Lord, you have everything that you need. Verse 7, the testimony of the Lord Lord is sure. In the scriptures, you, you have God himself speaking and testifying. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, and the commandment of the Lord is pure. And here, I think precepts and commandments, they have kind of a similar flavor. And you might think of the practical and specific direction that God's word gives us, that it shows us what love looks like. And there's a great place in Psalm 119, not 19, but 119 verse 45, where the psalmist says this. Listen to these words. Because I have sought your precepts, I walk in a wide place. Now that's very contrary to what most people think because most people think, oh, if I look at God's word, it's going like, to narrow my life. It's going to make life super narrow. The psalmist says, when I walk in your precepts, in your wisdom, in your commandments, my path is wide. I walk in a wide and free place. This is what freedom looks like. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That when we go to God's word and we have this, this posture of humility and reverence as we sit beneath his word, David talks about it as it's, it's clean. And this, this word that's used here, it's, it's connected to holiness. It's used to describe all sorts of things in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which is to say that living before God and receiving his word, it makes you, it makes you holy. It draws you nearer to him. And verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And here rules have God's judicial rulings in view. And David says, these, these are how you know what justice looks like. This is what is accurate and just and good. And not only does he tell us what characterizes God's word, but he tells us what it does. Verse 7, he says, it revives the soul. It restores our life. It makes us wise. 
It gives us insight. Verse 8, it causes our hearts to rejoice and enlightens our eyes. God's word orients us, directs us, lights our path, leads us unto true life and protects us from folly. Finally, let's think about the God who is revealed as the Redeemer. Now, this last part, I, I've looked at Psalm 19 many times before, and this really struck me this time as I was looking at it this week. It's very interesting if you look at what happens in these following verses. In verses 7 through 11, David speaks of the supreme value of God's word and how great it is and how amazing it is. And then in verses 12 and following, we see that this is a word that exposes David. And if you're a Christian, let me just tell you, if, if you're a Christian, you believe something really, really strange. And we see it here. You value God's word, and God is working in you to draw your heart more and more to value his instruction, more than anything, to show you that this is really what you need, more than gold, sweeter than honey. And yet, this word, this instruction that David loves so much is a word that exposes him. Look at verses 12 and 13, where he says, who can discern his errors? He's saying, in a sense, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? This revelation of God exposes it. It shows that there's a bentness to our own hearts that goes deeper than even our ability to fully understand. And he continues by praying, cleanse me from these hidden faults. In a sense, cleanse me from the sins that have become so characteristic and so natural that I don't even see him anymore. And then in verse 13, he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. That is, deliberate sins. Don't let them have do dominion over me. Don't let them control me. David is saying, in a sense, God, you have to protect me from myself. Keep me from the willful and deliberate ways that I knowingly rebel against you. Now, would you agree with me that it's kind of strange to so like love and cherish and savor this word that exposes you? But I think this is where it all takes us in this last verse where David says these words, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And that last word is so key, where he talks about God being his redeemer. Because as David thinks about creation and the glory of the world that he lives in, and as he thinks about scripture and the richness of God's word that even exposes his own sinfulness and bentness, he does it in light of the God who redeems. And it has to be the case, right? It has to be the case that this God of redemption is so fit to the task, so able to deal with David and to give him the mercy and the grace that he needs, that David's not even worried about being exposed. And this is not a hypothetical thing for David. A few weeks ago, if you were here, we looked at Psalm 51, which is a psalm where David says, Have mercy on me, O God, because I'm an adulterer and a murderer. And David, a man who committed adultery and murder, took his deepest, darkest sins and he published his confessions in a hymn book to be read and sung while he was alive. 
how great must this Redeemer be that if being exposed, that being exposed is not only, I think we could say, tolerable, but could actually be good if that exposure is meant with healing and mending and restoration of life and forgiveness and wholeness. And of course, the Redeemer that David spoke of, we can see in even greater clarity where we stand today in, in the history of God's revelation because we see Jesus Christ who the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1 tells us, right, he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Paul writes in Colossians 1, all things were made through him in heaven and on earth. The visible things, the invisible things, they were created through him and for him and in him all hold together. This is the creator. And this same Jesus Christ is the word of God in flesh. He is the instruction of God, the Torah of God, the wisdom of God, all bound up in a person, all the perfection of God and the faithfulness of God in a person. And this Redeemer, God in person in our world, went to the cross for us and for our sins. And to know him and to be united to him by faith is to be a person who's been cleansed and purified. And to be united to him by faith is to be someone who he restores us and he gives us joy and he keeps us and he leads us. And this is just one reason why I'm really excited about this study. Matt talked about it earlier. The study of Matthew that we're going to be doing this next year. Because in sermons and in discipleship groups and maybe even as, as we're just talking with one another, where we get to do exactly what this psalm is talking about. We get to learn and be instructed by God himself in the flesh. We get to be disciples and apprentices of Jesus. To know this Redeemer is to know the real context of your story. And it's a story in and through Jesus that is one ultimately of grace and mercy. And at a time like we're living right now, where the tensions are so high and there is so much division, the grace of the Redeemer is what we so deeply need to have the humility to live well. Right? Think about that. The humility to be slow to speak. The humility to listen. The humility that cannot ultimately divide the world into us versus them because it recognizes the deceitfulness of sin and it recognizes that we ourselves are in need of redemption. It's the context of grace that can fashion us into people who love and serve in this world in a way that bears witness to this Redeemer. This is what we need to have the wisdom to live well in this world in all that's going on right now, to have the hope to live in this world, to have all the nuances of scripture and all the nuances that we see in the person of Jesus to be able to do this well and to have the grace to do it. Let's take a moment as, as we do to pray silently to the Lord to perhaps confess our sins and our need for his help 
for his redeeming work in our lives. I'll give us a, a few moments to do that and, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray.